You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at agonet slash talks. Welcome, everybody. I'm Matthew Teitelbaum, the director of your Art Gallery of Ontario. Welcome to the second brown bag lunch and talk. Uh, when I... This is probably more information than you want to know. But when I was trying to figure out what to wear today, I checked my ties, and my tie actually has Paris and Lourdes on it, which I thought was quite appropriate for Anne de Botton. Uh, he didn't notice when I was speaking to him, but it does have Lourdes actually on it. Um, this is our second brown bag lunch. Our first was uh, about six months ago uh, when we uh, had a photographer from Vanity Fair here. It's part of a new, Todd Eberly, it's part of a new program that we've initiated that has been imagined, supported, and encouraged by an extraordinary AGO trustee, Maxine Goskin, and her husband, Ira. And Maxine, thank you so much for encouraging us to do this, truly. So 60% of you, I was standing at the front doing this calculation, are members of the Art Gallery of Ontario. That means that you got advance notice about this and were able to buy your tickets and sign up early. And I'm just encouraging all of you to become members, to become part of what is the great adventure of one of the great public institutions in our city. So I hope you feel this is your home and I hope that you'll always feel welcome here and that you will become members to support our long-term ambitions. So welcome everybody today. When I studied at the Courtauld to do my art history degree, I read something that Herbert Reed wrote, the great British writer and uh, thinker, novelist. He said, I don't want to educate myself in public. And I thought about that and I thought, yes, that's exactly me. I'm gonna be a serious student. I'm gonna hunker down. I'm never gonna show people what I don't know. And then I thought, of course, as a public person, this is completely wrong. That, in fact, we should always educate ourselves in public. And the remarkable thing about our guest, Alain de Botton, is that he lives that life. He is somebody who speculates, articulates, and leads us to new ideas precisely by sharing his ideas in public. He is one of our great public intellectuals, and it's wonderful that he's here in Toronto to promote his most recent book. So, Alain de Botton is the author of How Proust Can Change Your Life, The Architecture of Happiness, and he's now on his North American tour, and Toronto is his first stop and his only Canadian stop for his new book, Religion for Atheists. And there's a whole riff in the book about art, and my hope is that he'll spend a little bit more time than he might otherwise in this great home for art to talk about religious values, and the role of art. With great pleasure, Alain de Botton. Hello, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure for me to, to be here. I just had a look at the collection, which is outstanding. And um, so what, what better place to be discussing uh, themes around uh, religion and, of course, art as well than uh, this beautiful home for art. Um, the book that uh, I want to talk about, uh, and that's my latest, is called Religion for Atheists. And um, 
I've always been interested in my work in sources of wisdom. Uh, what is wisdom? Wisdom is uh, not only knowledge, but it's that part of knowledge that is applicable to our own dilemmas and pains. Um, and I've looked in psychology, in philosophy, uh, in art, uh, literature, and then uh, gradually I realized that I was becoming more and more interested in religion. And this took me by surprise uh, because I am indeed an atheist. And um, certainly for the last 10 or 15 years, being an atheist has involved, um, it's been suggested, not only thinking that uh, religious belief is false, but also that it's wrong, even ridiculous, malign, corrupt, sentimental, childish. Um, there's been a very virulent brand of atheism, uh, which has wanted to point out uh, the folly of all uh, religious uh, belief. And Christopher Hitchens' famous term, why religion poisons everything. Um, this didn't quite seem plausible to me. Um, growing up in the UK, uh, the idea that religion was poisoning everything um, didn't seem entirely plausible. I suppose I found myself in an unusual an uncomfortable setting. The doctrines of religion were impossible for me to believe, but I was interested in uh, all kinds of aspects, the secondary aspects that religion often brings with it. Uh, I like Christmas carols. I like the atmosphere of old churches. I like uh, uh, um, uh, religious works of, of, of art. Um, I like the concept of a pilgrimage, of fasting and feasting, and all sorts of other things that go with uh, religions. But frequently, we're presented with a rather sharp dichotomy. Either you accept um, the doctrines, all the doctrines of religion, uh, and then you can have the nice secondary stuff, or you can't sign up to the doctrines. They don't seem plausible. They don't have an emotional resonance in you, and then you are in a kind of wasteland um, uh, uh, without many of these uh, fascinating support uh, structures. This seemed to be, to be an unfair choice. And so what I want to lay out before you is a kind of a different method of, um, by which a non-believer might uh, approach uh, a religion. Incidentally, I should say that I don't, in my book, and I'm not today, going to spend any time at all on the question which atheists tend to circle around almost obsessively, which is the question of whether God does or does not exist. I'm going to wrap this one up with great brevity, and if anyone disagrees, please feel free to leave. The doors are still open. Um, <laughs> For me, as an atheist, I don't think God does exist. Um, and, but I think we can move on. I don't think this is the most important issue. Um, I think the most important issue is how can we build a good life with that insight? Once we've had that uh, uh, insight or once we feel um, uh, aligned with that idea, how can we go on to live? And what I elaborate is a deliberately pick-and-mix approach. Now, some of my sharpest critics have accused me of just that, a pick-and-mix approach, a buffet-style approach. Some people have scoffed and said, you know, how is it possible this man is treating religions as buffets? Um, but that's precisely, and indeed rather proudly, what I am doing. I believe that religions lie before us full of intriguing and interesting concepts, some rather uh, uh, morbid and not so appealing bits that we might want to skip past, but other more interesting bits. Um, and so what I want to give you as you're eating your sandwiches is to give you an imaginary plate and wander with me around the buffet of religions. It seems no more shocking to do this with religion than it does to do this with art and, or architecture or music. And we do this quite naturally. We do this with literature. You know, imagine if somebody said to you, 
you know, I, I really like Jane Austen. I really like the novels of Jane Austen. And some, then somebody else said, well, I hope you're staying committed to Jane Austen and not having flirtations with any other authors or <laughs> picking and mixing with, you know, any other thing. Uh, it would seem bizarre. Um, we naturally pick and mix when it comes to literature and music. And why shouldn't we do this uh, also with, uh, uh, with uh, religions if, as non-believers, we take... Uh, religions to be what I think they are, which is works of man, works of culture. They are cultural works like any other. So I'm going to go with you or with my plate and illustrate a kind of method um, that, uh, uh, by which one might look at, at religions. Um, let me start by considering one area where I think religions are really interesting, which is in the field of education. Now, education matters a lot to the secular world. Um, uh, huge amounts of resources are given up to secular education, our universities, our centers of great prestige. Um, and we say, when we try and ask, well, why, why do universities and schools matter? At one level, the answer is that these are the places that will teach us the skills to make modern capitalism function. This is how we will stay competitive in the world economy. But there's a deeper underlying ambition for why we might appreciate uh, uh, um, education. And it sometimes comes out in the more lyrical moments of politicians' speeches or on gradu at graduation ceremonies. And you sometimes hear it said that education is there to make us fully human, that it's, an it's, it, it's a way of accessing our, our full humanity, our full uh, maturity as, uh, as individuals, that this is what education is for. Um, now, I don't necessarily think that's actually what modern education does, and I don't think it does it because it's a little bit afraid of religion. Let me try and go back and explain what that claim. Um, you know, in the middle of the 19th century, in the UK, church attendance fell off a cliff. People were simply not going to churches uh, in anything like the numbers that their parents or grandparents had once done. And this worried a lot of people. Um, where asked these worried uh, onlookers, where was the general population going to find morality, ethical guidance, a source of meaning, a consolation for mortality and illness? Where was all that going to come from if religion was no longer going to be a touchstone for the, the truths in this area? Now, an influential wing of British society came up with a fascinating answer. I'm thinking here of people like John Stuart Mill and Matthew Arnold. They began to argue, quite vociferously, that there was a replacement for religion on hand. And that replacement, with a capital C, was culture. Culture could replace scripture. So the sources of meaning, of guidance, of morality, of consolation that people had once found in the Gospels were still to be found, or replacements were to be found in the essays of Montaigne, the uh, dialogues of Plato, the plays of Shakespeare, the novels of Jane Austen. These were fitting substitutes. These were complex works, and from them we could gain much of the same uh, uh, effectiveness as had been found in Scripture. And it's because of this... Um, uh, view of culture, that a huge amount of resource and energy was given to expanding the humanities, higher education, um, also the world of museums, the teaching of the arts in general, all benefited from that heroic mid to late 19th century idea that culture was on hand to rescue us um, now that scripture was no longer so convincing. That was the argument. Now, 
I think it's a beautiful argument, a, a fascinating argument. It's still quite a provocative one, um, and it's also one that has generally been totally forgotten by all institutions of higher learning in Canada and elsewhere. So if you pitched up at the university here in Toronto or any university in the UK or we went to Harvard, anywhere you like, and you said, look, hello, I've come to study the humanities because I'm interested in finding moral guidance, a source of meaning, uh, a way to console myself for my mortality and a sense of direction in life, the people in charge would start dialing the number for the insane asylum, and you'd be on your way in an ambulance quite quickly off the premises. Um, This simply sounds insane, Um, and I think part of the reason is that the model for what we need education for is a much more sober model. The ideal of the humanities student is of a fairly self-possessed character who is not in need of particular relevance, is not in need of drawing firm connections between their own situation and the things that they're studying. The idea is that life is more or less an easy thing to get through once you're a rational, functioning adult. After all, all you have to do is, you know, bring yourself up, um, find a life partner, have some children perhaps, find a job that's tolerably um, fulfilling, uh, watch your parents uh, get ill and then die, see the onset of your own mortality and eventually witness your own death, shut the coffin and head off uh, into the earth forever. And that's really basically quite simple. So we don't need any help. Thank you very much. That's the message. And the only people who need help are stupid people. And that's why stupid people read self-help books, because um, they're just not as self-possessed and as uh, you know, clever as uh, other people. So that's the kind of modern educational model. Now, Let me swing you with my plate um, towards the religious buffet. And religions have a completely different starting point. For religions, all of us are only just holding it together, me and you. Uh, Life is seriously hard business to get through, and we're not going to get through this without constant crises that life throws up at every stage. All the rites of passage are traumatic rites of passage, um, all of the moments, and of course the greatest trauma of all, which is illness and uh, and mortality. We're not going to get through it. Now, I don't necessarily agree with um, what particular wisdom religion places on hand to help us deal with this. But I'm fascinated by this model of what you might call human vulnerability. I think that's actually very true. It's true to the way we are. Um, Think of the characteristic modes of instruction of the secular world on the one hand and the religious world on the other. You know, the secular world delivers lectures. What is a lecture? A lecture is a rather sober uh, thing I'm trying to deliver now, um, uh, that, you know, you're sharing some interesting facts to people who basically their lives are rich and fully stocked and, you know, things are fine. And so there's no, no particular urgency or whatever. But look, swing back to religion. What do they do? They deliver sermons. Now, what is a sermon? A sermon is an impassioned delivery of some eternal truths which are designed to change and save your life at moments of particular crisis keep you on an even keel to point you towards a wise way of looking at things. And even though I'm aligning myself with the, uh, uh, the lecture, actually my heart is rather with the sermon. Um, and uh, as you'll go on to see, as the tone gets more and more hectoring. Um, but uh, I, I'm, I'm joking. But, but, but essentially I'm attracted to the serious didactic instrumental mission. You know, modernism in the arts has been set dead against an instrumental vision of culture. The idea that culture should be doing anything is seen as the height of vulgarity. 
um, the more serious, elite a work of art is, the more its uh, message should be ambiguous, uh, ill-defined, somehow uh, uh, untouchable. Um, and uh, as I say, the didactic approach, there must be something wrong with it. So go on to explain, explore this a little bit more, but this is a very fascinating, fertile area that religions are, are pointing us to. The other thing that interests me in relation to education is not just the content, but also the methods of delivery. Religions are fascinating at the way they deliver education. They're fantastically successful. You know, religions are possibly the most successful educational machines the world has ever seen. Um, now, one of the reasons they do this is they've got an image of what we're all like. And the first thing that they think we are is very, very forgetful. They think we forget everything. Um, they're very imbued to that ancient Greek word, akrasia. What is akrasia? Akrasia translated as weakness of will. Now, weakness of will was fa fascinating to Greek philosophers because it suggested that we can have certain ideas in our intellects, in our reason, that are totally convincing, make complete sense, and yet they are ineffective in our lives because at key moments, our will has become weak. And this fatally undermines the course of individuals and society's existence. So they were very keen to try and find ways around that, uh, and certainly Christianity absorbed a lot of that uh, thinking. Uh, and, 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 but you find echoes of it across the faiths, which is really this idea that because we're so forgetful, we need to repeat things all the time. So religions are all about repetition, all of them. Um, you know, the idea is that what you knew at 9 o'clock in the morning will be growing dim by 12 and will be totally forgotten by the evening. So you need constant rehearsals, 10, 12, 15 times a day. You're on your knees, you're rehearsing things because otherwise it will disappear. Totally different from the secular view. The secular view is you can sit someone down in a classroom, age 20, you can pour in some knowledge, and if the idea is good, it will stick there through a 40-year career in management consultancy. You'll never need to top it up. It'll just be there forever. Religions go, no, by nightfall, it'll be gone. So very different uh, kind of uh, view. The other thing that religions do is they try and arrange time. Um, they have diaries and calendars. All the major religions have calendars. Now, what is, you know, what is the religious calendar? Of course, we have calendars and diaries in the secular world, but if you open up our diaries, they are full of business meetings, appointments, things we've got to do with the kids. Um, they are not calendars in the way that religions understand them. What religions want to do is to put into our diaries certain key moments when we will have an appointment with a intellectually or spiritually important idea or concept. So, you know, if you're a Catholic on March the 31st, you will have an appointment with St. Jerome and his qualities of humility and charity. And so him, what he stands for will be uh, uh, will find a place in the chronology of your life. It won't get squashed or missed out. Um, we in the secular world think, no, you know, ideas, if they're valuable, will just bubble up spontaneously. We're all about spontaneity. Religions are about rituals. What a ri what's a ritual? A ritual is something that you do when you gather with a group of people and the group helps you to perform some inner function. It leads you to perform an inner psychological enrichment which would not have been possible without the group. Totally counter to the way we do it in the secular world. The secular world says, you know, on the one hand, there's the inner stuff, and you do that on your own. And on the other, there's the group, and the group's really disconnected. Group activities are not connected to the rich inner world, and religions beg to differ. And I think they're very intelligent in this. Um, I think they remind us of all sorts of things that we should remember more. Take the moon, right? So the moon, very important 
important thing to look at every now and then. You know when you catch, some, catch the moon sometimes, it's a warm summer's evening, you're walking in the garden in a field or something, and you catch sight of the moon, and um, all sorts of good ideas can spring off the moon. Your own problems are relativized. The awe that the stars provoke um, brings stillness to your own insatiable ego, my own insatiable ego, um, and uh, feelings of envy and competition um, dissipate among a sense of the thousands and billions of light years uh, in which this planet has been existing and will continue uh, to, to exist. The problem is that none of us look at the moon very often. We forget the moon. And the reason is we're busy, there's just stuff to do, and we don't really look at the moon very often. But, but if you're a Zen Buddhist, you do look at the moon. In fact, the moon is in your diary. In the middle of September, there's the festival of Tsukimi, very important Zen Buddhist festival. You're asked out of your homes uh, and offices, and you go and stand on specially made canonical platforms, and you look at the moon, and you contemplate all the lessons, the spiritual lessons that might emanate from the moon. You read poetry, you eat rice cakes, uh, you chat to friends, and the moon has a place in your heart. And you find this ritualization of the inner life in many, many different uh, uh, religions. In Judaism, for example, uh, at about this time of year, or in a few months, if you're in part of an orthodox community, the rabbi will take you out to celebrate um, the ritual of Birkat Hilachot, where the rabbi takes you into a field and together you recite prayers in honor of springtime. You look at the flowers, the new blossoms on the trees, and you remember the creator and the beauty of uh, the, the, the earth as it's reborn from winter. A charming, lovely ritual. Now, some of you atheists might be thinking, but what about Wordsworth, you know, for example? You know, we've got all this stuff. We don't need to go to religion for this because, you know, we, we, as I say, you know, we've got Wordsworth. But it's true. You know, if you read Wordsworth, it's full of this kind of stuff about worshipping the earth and, and welcoming the new seasons, etc. The problem is um, that none of us read Wordsworth. Um, <laughs> that's really the problem. And, and um, some of us maybe had a glimpse at, in him at, um, at, at university, but we haven't really looked at him since. Um, <laughs> And, and that's the problem, because we've got too many things in our diaries, um, and our diaries are slightly the wrong kind of diary, religions would, would, would argue. So it's trying to find a synchronization between the inner need and the outer calendar, absolutely central. Um, let's look at something else, uh, oratory. All religions are obsessed by oratory. They believe that unless you speak well, and I must apologize for my own performance, but unless you speak well, your message won't get through to your audience. So rhetoric is an integral part of how a religion must function. We don't believe this in the secular world. That's why so many professors mumble. The reason they mumble is that it, the belief is that so long as your idea is intellectually sound, it doesn't matter really how it's delivered because the intellect... Um, uh, is all that needs to be appealed to, and the intellect will, will, will rule over the passions and over the emotions. Um, not quite true, I don't think, so we need to swing back and look at the way that religions do this. Think of the Pentecostalist preachers of the American South. They've probably taken the Christian idea of oratory to its summit. Um, if ever you go to a church in the American South, I mean, extraordinary thing to do. Uh, I've done this a few times. And, you know, the atmosphere is kind of electric. Um, the priest will be standing uh, at, at the podium, and, you know, every now and then something will be said, and it'll, it'll catch an echo uh, in the audience. People will go, amen, amen, amen. If there's a really rousing point, they'll stand up and they'll go, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Savior, thank you, Christ. And there's kind of ecstasy in, in the hall. Now, back to our modern universities. Well, here we are. Um, LAUGHTER People standing there as the prof delivers his lecture. Well, clearly what we need to do is to get our profs signed up with some Pentecostalist preachers. 
then people will be standing up and going, you know, thank you, Plato, thank you, Shakespeare, thank you, Jane Austen, and there'll be real energy in the room. But of course, we don't do it, and we don't do it because we think that all that's important is the concept, the, the idea. One way of looking at it is that religions take the body seriously, whereas modern secular society, particularly when it comes to intellectual culture, does not take the body seriously. You know, religions are obsessed by the thought that our minds exist within a body which has a huge sway upon us. So if you're trying to reach somebody, don't just try and touch them through their minds, involve their whole selves, which is why religions use art and architecture and sound and music, uh, but also the sound of dripping water, atmosphere, smell, texture. They're in, taking an interest in how we sleep, our posture, what we eat. All of this is part of religion. Um, it's part of religious instruction, if you like. And sounds very odd, because in, in the modern world, we tend to imagine that the kind of body bit exists in, in one corner, and it's, you know, for the Sunday supplements of the newspapers about, you know, face cream and how to sleep better and how to use a good pillow. And, and then on the other hand, you've got the ideas, the world of ideas. But religions are one. They unite these two facets. Um, and I think that's a very wise way. I mean, let's look at Zen Buddhism. You know, Zen Buddhism has this wonderful ritual of, of the Buddhist tea ceremony. Now, what is the Buddhist tea ceremony? At one level, it's a lecture about friendship. It's a way of rehearsing ideas about the importance of social bonds. But it's not just that. It's also a tea party. Um, and the ritual imbibing of green tea has various, if you like, synesthetic connections with the lesson in uh, friendship. And it's like these two activities are supporting each other. The tea is supporting the philosophy, and the philosophy is supporting the tea to make an integrated lesson, which is characteristic of, of religions. Religions do this with food. They also do this with water. Um, you know, uh, all religions use water because it's obvious that as creatures who have come from water, who are mostly made up of water, uh, water has this very intriguing um, psychological resonance, which religions exploit and are, are aware of. Um, so all the major religions have water-based rituals. Um, take the Jewish uh, uh, mikveh. You know, in an Orthodox Jewish community, um, there'll always be at the center of that community a mikveh, which is a bath, where you will plunge yourself um, ritualistically every Friday, if you're an Orthodox male, and you will atone for sins, and you will remember uh, things you've done wrong, and you will ask for forgiveness, and you will say certain prayers, and then you will dunk yourself in the water from head to toe. And the water is being asked to perform a function. Again, you know, we catch an echo of that function when something's gone a bit wrong, and we say, you know, tonight I'm going to stay home and have a good long bath. Um, and really, we're not saying, I'm going to get washed. Really, what we're saying is I'm going to try and use water to do that thing that religions have always wanted water to do, which is to mark a watershed, to draw a line between one part of our lives and another. So in this area, as in so many other areas, we catch echoes of what religions are doing in secular practice. But I think the example of religion lends particular resonance and helps us to focus on what these um, slightly submerged concepts that we're daily dealing with in secular life, where they come from, and also how they could uh, be sharpened up, perhaps. Um, now, let's look at the world of art, um, and we're in no better place to do that than, than here. Now, art uh, is incredibly important to the secular world. You know, um, uh, a lot of the surplus wealth of our societies gets directed towards the arts in one form or another. The arts has enormous prestige, um, and that's why, you know, you often hear it said that art galleries are our new cathedrals. They are our new churches. They are places of reverence and value. Um, you stay quiet when you're in them, and you have a feeling that it's good to go there 
um, and somehow a visit to, to a gallery will lift you in some ways and perform an important uh, function. Um, I want to allege, with all due respect to the many people in this room who are involved in the world of museums um, and who do a great job, um, I nevertheless want to suggest that perhaps, in some ways, the, our approach to art is not going as well as it might have done, despite our huge investment and despite the enormous ambitions and hopes that we carry into the museum, things are perhaps not going as well as they might. Now, the reason for this, I think, is twofold. There are two ideas, two ideologies, which are floating around the ether uh, in the museum world, in the world of curation, uh, in the art world, um, that I think come between us and perhaps a deeper, um, more resonant relationship to works of art. The first is a hangover from the 19th century and a deeply confusing dictum that art should be for art's sake. Now, what do we mean by that? What, what, what's meant by that? I think really it means, as it's been, as it's been carried across uh, the decades, I think really it means that the world of art exists slightly independently from the rest of society, particularly from politics, from political agendas, uh, and, and uh, certainly from religious agendas. In fact, the dictum arises precisely as an alternative to a religious view. So art should exist in, in, in a special space, in a privileged space, and should not be asked to um, involve itself in many aspects of, of daily life. It, it exists in, in the world of, of art, its own separate uh, realm. There's another idea at large, and that's the idea of ambiguity. The thought is that the greater a work of art, the harder it becomes to say what that work of art is for, or indeed about. Um, again, this is a modernist idea. The modernist idea is that ambiguity is a hallmark an indicator of greatness. Um, and therefore, to over-explain, to ask too directly what something is for, brings you close to a vulgar instrumentalism which art is structurally opposed to. Art exists, artists exist away from the capitalist pressure to be relevant, uh, to have a point to it, uh, and it is allowed, therefore, to be slightly mysterious, which is why we sometimes come away from galleries of modern art. I'm sure not this one. Sometimes we come away from galleries of modern art thinking, if we're nice people, not quite sure what that meant. Um, <laughs> now, if we're nice people, as I'm sure everybody is here, um, we always think, well, there's something wrong with me. I, you know, I don't know. I didn't know enough. I didn't read something. And sometimes we might buy a catalog and we might think this seems like it's been badly translated from the German. But again, <laughs> we tend to blame our, our, ourselves and the fault lies, lies elsewhere. Now, I want to contrast this with the attitude of religions because it's so different. It's so provocatively different. So let's look at how religions look at art. For most of the major faiths, the purpose of art is incredibly simple to state. It can be stated very simply, this is it. The point of art is to help us to be good and to remind us not to be bad. In other words, art is there with a didactic purpose. It's there to uh, uh, push us towards a moral and a good life as is understood by the religion. It's to spur gratitude, it's to remind us of virtues like love and forgiveness and kindness, etc. Um, and the reason why we need art, why do religions feel we need art? Religions feel it brings us back to that word acrasia. We need art because we're so forgetful. So intellectually, we know all sorts of stuff. We know that we should be kind and forgiving and gentle and, you know, yes, yes, yes. Problem is that day to day, 
that slips completely out of our minds. It has no effect on us. Um, and the reason is that our emotions and our passions are far too strong to, uh, to, 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 to be stopped by a mere idea. So that's why we need art. We need art to bring to life the neglected truths, to breathe energy into what might be seen otherwise as cliches. And, you know, we all know what this feels like. Um, you know, think of... Think of music. Um, think of think of music and love. You know, because modern music is so much about love. But um, you know, we all get told that love's important. It's good to love. And uh, but sometimes you think, mm, love. You know, what, what does it really mean? Until you hear Paul McCartney singing "Hey Jude," and you think, oh, okay. Now I'm beginning to remember. Now I remember what love is. You know, and by the end, by the time the chorus is going on and on, you're thinking, okay, I'm beginning to feel free to love anyone. And uh, <laughs> that sense of expansiveness is there that three and a half minutes before had not been. So, you know, it works with all all categories of art: music, uh, you know, the visual arts, you know, painting, sculpture, etc. They're all capable uh, of this. But for religions, we need a lot of this art. We need, we, need, we need it constantly around us because otherwise we're going to, to forget. And you know that feeling sometimes you go and see a fantastic film and you come out and it's dark and you think that's an amazing film, let's say about forgiveness, about family, finally breaking the bonds of you know, surliness and sulkiness and resolving the problems of decades. And you think that's what I want to do. Problem is by lunchtime the next day, you've sort of forgotten most of the film. And by that weekend, the whole thing's gone completely out of your mind. So, but, so religions feel that if you're going to use art, you need to keep, it re keep rehearsing it. There's nothing wrong with seeing a film twice or indeed 30 times. Um, you need to keep revisiting uh, uh, works of art. If you like, works of art are pieces of propaganda. Um, and when you hear that word propaganda, um, it's a frightening word. It's a slippery slope, isn't it? It's a slippery slope at the bottom of which two very violent and horrendous characters are waving their arms around. One of them is Hitler and one of them is Stalin. And we always think about Hitler and Stalin when the word propaganda is mentioned because they're the two exemplars of people who've used propaganda to the most noxious ends. But I want to try and get us to hover midway down that very dangerous slope. We don't have to fall to the bottom of that slippery slope. Um, I think we can hang on in the middle and remember that there are ways of propagandizing on behalf of some quite nice things. Most of the art that you will see downstairs in the, in the rooms that, that hang Christian art are basically, and with absolutely no offense, because many of them are absolute masterpieces, these are works of propaganda. Of course they are. They are works that are propagandizing on behalf of qualities like courage and charity and forgiveness. Uh, and, you know, I saw a beautiful little figurine of a, a mother and a child uh, done in 1300s in uh, Normandy. Beautiful piece of, I think, ivory. And, um, you know, what, what, what is that work? It's a piece of propaganda on behalf of maternal tenderness. So it doesn't always have to be dictatorships and, you know, the Third Reich. It can be on behalf of certain things. And the idea is you will look at that figurine and certain emotions will be evoked in you. Now, all of this is very contrary or very different from the modern way of arranging a museum. Most museums in the world are arranged by academic criteria. Here is the room for the early Netherlandish paintings. Here is the 19th century. Here is a bather. Um, here is the modern world. There is a Warhol, etc. In other words, they are done by key artists and by key periods. Um, but Religions don't do that. If you think of what a church is, a church is a machine for prompting you 
uh, to have certain experiences of the soul through the use of art, if you're walking around. Think of the Stations of the Cross. You go around the Stations of the Cross, and you're prompted to have a series of thoughts around a kind of ambulatory circuit. Um, and I can't help thinking how interesting that would be if today's museums took a leaf from that religious book. And, you know, if the idea was to remind us of tenderness, what tenderness is. You could mix not just that ivory statuette from the 1300s, but you might also mix that with you know, a photograph by um, uh, uh, you know, a modern photographer. You could look to Jeff Wall for an image of tenderness. He has some of those. Um, you could create all sorts of juxtapositions uh, and really be using art in the way that religions use art. In other words, as a guide to, to the good life. To, to the fulfilling life. It's so alien to the modern curatorial system, but I place it before you as a provocation. Um, the other thing that uh, religions remember is that architecture matters too. You know, the quality of the space that we're in is not just an idle fancy. You know, very often the word beauty is associated with frivolity, with luxury, that to try and make a beautiful space is just sort of wasting a bit of money and trying to be a bit fancy. So we've got, you know, in the modern world, the aesthetic world, which is close to luxury, and then we've got the sort of moral world, which is earnest but independent of uh, the visual. Uh, and again, most religions unite the two. So for Catholicism, a beautiful space is not just an idle distraction. It is, in fact, a material representation of goodness, for, for medieval Catholic philosophers, beauty is, in a material form, uh, a constituent of goodness. And similarly, ugliness is evil. Um, and we might say, walking down certain Toronto streets, oh, a bit of a horrible, evil tower block. But, but Catholic theologians would literally say it is evil, um, that it represents the worst sides of humanity. Now, again, very, very provocative. Um, and I think we should ask certain of Toronto's property developers to read a little bit more uh, Catholic uh, aesthetics before they put up the next building. Um, let, let's look at another thing. Um, Let's, look at, let's remember that religions are organized. You know? The major faiths are called organized religions, and that means that they are vast agglomerations of people who've come together around a set of, of ideas about the soul, about the good life. Um, now, it strikes me that in the modern world, people who are involved in dealing with the good life, with the soul, with the inner life of man, are very frequently lone actors. They are disorganized. Not, not that they, their diaries are a mess, but, but that they are, they're operating on their own. They're frequently in their bedrooms. You know, I'm thinking here of, of poets and novelists and guitar players and psychoanalysts and, and uh, 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 artists of all, uh, of all kinds. These are people who are working on their own. They're independent. Um, and there's a great suspicion of collective activity. You know, that 19th century idea is if you're important and interesting, you do not group together with anybody. The group is suspicious. But religions take a different view. They're organized, um, and they have scale. They have logos. They, they're, they're multinational. They have scripts and uniforms. If you like, the only thing that's comparable to religions in the modern world are multinational corporations. Um, and there are lots of similarities between the two, except, of course, when it comes to what they're doing, because religions are trying to solve the problems of the soul, whereas multinational corporations are on the whole trying to feed and house and clothe and look after the body. They're selling us cement and pizzas and shoes. So it's almost like you've got three elements in the modern world. You've got religions who are doing the, the soul stuff. They're organized, but they're doing the soul stuff. You've got organized multinational corporations.
operations, but they're doing the bodily stuff. And then you've got those lone actors who are doing the soul stuff uh, from their bedrooms. Um, and I think that's kind of, well, it's certainly worth thinking about. You know, the Catholic Church pulled in $97 billion um, last year. And, you know, I, I have a psychoanalyst friend and who said to me the other day, you know, he said, this is amazing because, you know, we've got so many more insights than the Catholics in a way. He was, you know, he's had a few glasses of wine and we were sort of discussing uh, uh, religion. He said, you know, it's so much richer. And I had to say, look, you know, it's true. In terms of your understanding of the human psyche, I, you know, I would say you're probably right that, that, you know, modern psychoanalysis has got a richer grasp of what's truly going on in the individual psyche. Uh, and, and he was slightly lamenting his, his practice and the standing of his profession. And um, I said, yeah, but, you know, you guys are disorganized. You know, think of the Catholics. At least they got themselves together. And that's why, you know, they've got $97 billion coming in. Um, so, so that gives them weight and might uh, in the world. And I think atheists too often believe um, that in order to challenge religion, all you need to do is to write a book. Um, you know, if you go to your study, write a really clever, slightly sarcastic book and launch it on the world, you will bring religion down. Um, now, I've got bad news for people who've done that. Um, it just is not going to work. And the reason it's not going to work is that what you're dealing with in religion is not just a book. Obviously, there are books central to religions, but you're dealing with something that is a community, uh, that is a, you know, a whole society that deals with, with travels, with art, with uh, a, a, a sense of well-being of the bodily kind that's dealing with journeys and, and, and all kinds of activities. And to try and think that a book is going to bring that down is just not really recognizing your, uh, uh, your your, your, your enemy, really. Um, lastly, one thing that I think religions also do really well is look after community. You know, religions know how to bring people together and bring out their sociability, their social impulses. It's my belief that all of us have great reserves of sociability, curiosity, and kindness about one millimeter below the surface. The thing is, on the surface, we're all pretty grumpy. We sort of wander through the world looking a little bit annoyed and, you know, don't talk to me. And the reason we do this is that we're terrified that the stranger, because we read newspapers, we're terrified that the stranger is a murderer or a pedophile or a madman. And that's why we have to keep looking pretty serious because you just don't know who anybody is. Now, religions dissolve our anxieties, bring us into a room, and say, look, everybody here is safe. You know, once a week or twice a week or once a month, it brings them together. Religions function as hosts. The word host is a religious word. Um, and you know hosts at parties, you know, a good host will bring strangers together and will say, look, you talk to so-and-so, you talk to so-and-so. And we also know what happens, particularly in England, if there's a bad host, which is a disaster. No one talks to anyone. Um, so, so in a way, the problems of human sociability are not structurally that complicated, but you do need a host. And that's what religions are. And sometimes people say, yeah, but what about, you know, People who gather together to, you know, play ice hockey or go fishing, you know, aren't these good communities? And I think that religions are more challenging because what they do is they bring together strangers who've got nothing in common. They don't like ice hockey. They're not, it's not about sport or about a hobby. It's simply based on your humanity. And so the stranger becomes a friend. And that's a very arduous spiritual exercise that religions put us through to fascinating uh, effect. Okay. So wrapping up now, um, I think that in many, many areas, if you're not a believer, religions have got things to teach you. You know, if you're in education, it's got things to teach you. If you're in community building, if you're in travel, look at pilgrimages. If you're in the art world, look at how, religious, uh, look at how religions behave with art. Ultimately, religions are, at their best moments, intermittently, far too interesting, beautiful, complex, subtle 
to be abandoned just to those who actually happen to believe in them. They're for all of us, especially non-believers. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, we've got some time for questions, so do put up your hand, and we've got some roving mics as well, and um, let's go for it. Yeah, question there. Hi. Um, I was just wondering if you could maybe talk about the use of photography in your books. I feel like it's something that's very unique to your books and use of images and photography and how that sort of came about and how you arrived at that, and maybe also how people have reacted to it. So um, a question about photography. Almost all my books are illustrated in some way. And look, I've always believed that communication in a book uh, can function through images and text. Um, I don't simply illustrate a point I'm making. I tend to have the photos running along a parallel track with connections with the text, but often um, uh, uh, slightly offbeat. I, my most... Uh, uh, the, the picture I like best in this book is a picture of Madonna and Guy Ritchie having an argument in a restaurant. And I'm talking about religion's attitudes to relationships. And I say uh, the caption uh, is that religions are wise enough to give us angels to worship and humans to tolerate um, And as they're arguing, as this couple is, is kind of arguing. So I'm all the time trying to create a sort of parallel uh, line. It, it's, it's, it's striking to me that most authors don't do this. That this should, I mean, it seems like such a natural maneuver. I think a lot of resistance comes from publishers who, if you say to them, uh, I've got a few illustrations, they go, oh, it's going to be very, very expensive. But uh, over the years, I've managed to, um, at the end of lunch with the publisher, just slip out. Look, you wouldn't mind having 60 illustrations in <laughs> the next book. And um, if they've had a glass of wine, they'll say, okay. Um, so, but I, look, I think it's, uh, it's simply another method of communication. Are you arguing for uh, forms of liturgy in secular humanism? Am I arguing for forms of liturgy? Um, well, forms of. Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't believe that um, uh, we need to create a religion for atheists. Sometimes my, my book has been misinterpreted. The title literally means this is a blueprint for a new religion. Um, this is not the case. I don't believe this is possible. I think that people who are, are non-believers are not interested in such a thing. Nevertheless, I think there are moments in secular life where things can be infused with lessons from religion. Um, and that might be in education, it might be uh, in our relationship to nature, it might be in our journeys, it might be uh, in our attitudes to, to, to love, all kinds of areas. Um, uh, if you call that a liturgy, I mean, liturgy feels slightly too prescriptive. I think we have to tread carefully. The modern world is multifaceted, multipolar. I think we will never again reach the level of agreement that religious societies had. That's not to say there's nothing we can agree on. There are huge areas of shared values. Um, I just think that those shared values uh, will never perhaps be expressed again in a liturgical form. Um, but, but look, I mean, I'm interested in how secular works of culture. I wrote a book years ago called How Proust Can Change Your Life, which was in a sense a piece of liturgy around the works of Marcel Proust. You know, did it take place in a, in a, in a, in a church with um, people in a cape? No, nothing as sinister as that, but it was an attempt to suggest ways of approaching a text like Marcel Proust in a slightly liturgical way, I would say. Other thoughts? Um, 
Yes, so Someone's got a mic? Yeah. Yes, first of all, Alain, I want to thank you for your impassioned lecture. And I, what I was wondering is, on the one hand, you say that you're an atheist. On the other hand, you, there's so many things about religion that you admire. And, and I must add, that's exactly where I live, too. That's how I feel. Mm. However, do you, do you ever yearn to be a believer? Right. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's very funny, um, because since writing this book, um, I've, had, I've had moments with... Uh, uh, with, I was interviewed in, in England by something called the Church Times, which is a sort of Anglican uh, newspaper, and um, the guy was going through all my points, and, so, and then he said at the end, look, I, I'm slightly speaking out of turn, but um, would you like to join us? Um, um, we, have a, we have a church uh, in uh, Newnham, and uh, you could come along, you could sit at the back, you wouldn't be pressured into anything, you could take it slowly. And I said, look, that's so kind, um, but I am an atheist. Um, and I think this is precisely the point to try and hold on to. The next logical step, once one you know, has looked around these ideas, is not belief, necessarily. I mean, it might be for some people, but I'm fighting against that assumption that it has to be the next logical step. It, it could be for some, but not for me. Yeah. Yes. Thank you, I appreciate that. Um, a slightly related question, actually, in writing this book has, because you started with a fairly provocative statement of, I am an atheist. Has your atheism evolved at all in the writing of the book? Has my atheism evolved? Um, look, my understanding of religion has hugely evolved, and I have to say um, that I'm not... You know, there are lots and lots of parts of religion that I really find challenging and difficult. You know, some people have attacked me for saying, why doesn't he mention al-Qaeda, um, pedophile priests, uh, the Inquisition, the Crusades? Um, and I don't mention these things, not because I've forgotten about them, but because I'm trying to advance a certain line. I'm trying to look at the positives. But um, am I aware of negatives? Yes, I'm very aware. Um, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I truly am an atheist. So... Has my atheism evolved? It's evolved, I suppose, from a blanket rejection of all religion to a feeling that there are many, many religious concepts that I can engage with. I mean, even the concept of original sin, for example, that I thought I could never really you know, make friends with. The, how can an atheist make, make a concept like original sin? Um, uh, uh, how can they make friends with that? Well, in chapter four of the book, you will see that I've had a good go at trying to see, show how the concept of original sin is highly applicable to atheists. So, I mean, it's like <laughs> somersaulting, but uh, you'll see. Yeah. I, I just wanted to ask you if, you're, are, if you are a tenor. You sound like a tenor to me. Tenor. A and uh, I just wondered if you, I sing in the choir, and I, and I don't know if the word spirituality, spir yeah, spirituality rather than spiritualism, has come up, but... Uh, I think there's a group that repeats. Yes, absolutely. And, um, and get something out of it. Yeah. There. I mean, generally, my singing, my repertoire is, is mostly limited to singing ABBA songs with my children um, and dancing around with them. So, it, yeah, it's, no, I, I've, I've not explored my voice, I think, um, in the interests of the audience. Um, and I, I won't do so. But, you know, as we mentioned music, I think one of the great things about certainly church music is the range of emotions that are dealt with by the musical canon of, let's say, certainly Christianity. Um, and I, I always think, you know, listening to contemporary music, there's such an obsession with finding your baby. You know, my baby, where's my baby, my baby. And, and the thing is that that's really valuable. And when you're sort of, you know, between the ages of 11 and, you know, 35, when you're looking for the baby, the music is incredibly resonant. But after, you know, once you've found the baby and everything's great, 
But nevertheless, there are challenges. You don't find musical treatments of qualities like abjection or the longing for transcendence or um, the, you know, the, the, the contact with mortality. Very few of our musicians are exploring those themes. There are some. Of course, there are some. Um, but I think that's an enduring lesson. And if I was in charge of uh, EMI or something, I would try and say, you know, let's try and stretch what our artists are, are doing. Fortunately, I'm not. But anyway, um, other thoughts? There's, there we go. There's a, a lot of humanist groups that start, um, and they seem to grow to a certain point and crash and burn, uh, or they split up. Um, so they never really get to be a large community. Uh, any, there's lots of reasons, I'm sure, but any main reasons you can think of? Um, look, I think um, I, I don't think there's any essential reason. I think it's like saying, you know before, I don't know, X computer company came along, there were just lots of bit players who kept squabbling and never really made it big until you know, IBM came along or something. I, I think it's just you know, how, how human beings function and sometimes don't really uh, get, it, uh, get it together. So I think there's nothing suspicious. But I think one of the things that the humanists... I mean, there, there's something in Britain. I don't know if there's anything comparable in Canada. There's something in Britain called the British Humanist Association. And in a way, this should be the answer to everything. Um, but when you look at when you go and log on to the British Humanist Association, first of all, the website looks terrible. And you think, oh, my goodness, who designed this? And then, and then most of it is all about attacking people who believe and, and how stupid they are. And then there's a bit that says um, rituals. And you're like, oh, great, you know, rituals. And I remember looking at this um, and clicking on it. And, and it, it says, you know, if you want to get married or have a funeral. I thought, oh, this is kind of interesting. So you click on the marriage button. And a picture of a, um, of a, I think they have a special name. I forget the name. Anyway, a, a kind of guy who will come and do... A, a, a service for you. And I remember looking at, at, at him and thinking, oh, wow, he's not very well dressed. Um, and he'd written some prose about why he'd gone into this line of work. And I thought, oh, there's lots of spelling mistakes here. And it's not very elegant. Now, I'm not just being bitchy and horrible. Um, I'm actually trying to make a point, which is that the British Humanist Association, unlike most religions, has forgotten one really big thing, which is if you're trying to get through to people, aesthetics matter. Um, they, they, they've, again, they've come from that intellectual strand um, and so some of their weakness comes from the fact they're not taking clothing seriously. I haven't got any of the hats. Um, they haven't got the music, and their prose is wonky. And um, again, this is not superficial. This is not superficial. This is absolutely essential because we are embodied creatures. We pick up essential signs from these cues. Um, I don't know how strict everybody is about getting back to work. Maybe one more question. One more question. Yeah. Hi. This is going to be a half-baked question. Okay. I apologize in advance, but you're eliciting a lot of thought in, for me. Um, so I'm Jewish, and I'm um, uh, agnostic atheist, and um, my sense of identity related to religion emanates in part from a historical connection, and, I, and that's a responsibility and has moral imperative and guilt and, you know, all that Jewish stuff, but, or maybe not. Um, but I'm just curious to know, you didn't really talk a lot about history. Um, you talk more about culture, and I'm wondering how that plays into, if you're going to talk about atheist or religion, how that impacts the, mm. what are the ramifications? Well, I'm aware, as, as someone who's brought up in a nominally Jewish family, I'm aware um, that Judaism does rather charmingly hold open the possibility that one could both be a practicing Jew and believe in nothing at all. Um, this is quite an intellectual somersault, um, but the Jews have always been into that. And um, so 
That's, that's what they do. And so the idea is, you know, you can go through Passover and you can, you can celebrate Yom Kippur and you can talk about God and it's fine. Um, it doesn't matter. That you don't, you know. And, and um, certain Christian denominations are catching on to this too. There's a movement in England called the Christian Atheist Movement. Um, most, of, most of the Church of England believes in nothing at all. Great surprise if you meet, you know, um, a bishop or you know, who believes in anything. Um, so, so I think this is a sign of the times. But look, I think you can go along with it for a bit. But I think if you really are a non-believer, there has to come a point when you think, okay, look, um, I'm culturally, you know, come from this, this space, but I'm not sure if it's really right that I'm standing here on Yom Kippur and saying these words to uh, a supreme being whose existence I absolutely don't believe in. Um, there, there comes to be, I think, something incongruous in that. And um, one could paper over that and say, well, I'll come along anyway, I'll go along, and, you know, it's, it's a beautiful ceremony. Um, but I think I want to try and accentuate the tensions, because I felt those tensions, you know. And, and when, when Christian's friends have said to me, you know, come along, sing along, don't worry about what it means, you know, it's fine. <laughs> I don't know, you know. And I think we need to get creative. I think we're at the dawn of an era in which many, many of us are coming out of particular traditions, maybe can't even remember particular traditions. So we can't just tag along and do as our fathers did, grandfathers did, and grandmothers did. It's, it's really growing distant. And that's the constituency I suppose I'm talking about. Slightly adrift, no longer able even just to pretend to believe. Um, even that's become challenging. So that's the starting point. Um, I think we're going to have to wrap it up there. But thank you so much, all of you, for coming. It's been a huge pleasure for me. And uh, please come and sign a, uh, get a book signed afterwards. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.